Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to the Source Hermes podcast. Today is August 18, 2019. You will be going to hear episode 6 of our third season. My name is Rudolf, and as always, I am your host. Thoth Hermes podcast brings to you extensive interviews with personalities from very different areas of the world of the Western esoteric tradition, the occult and the paranormal worlds. You can find our podcasts on many different outlets like Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, to name just a few. And for those of you who prefer to listen on YouTube, all our episodes since April are also on our YouTube channel, Thos Hermes Podcast. Of course, in an audio-only version. But the best way is to go on our website, www.thoshermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. The best way, because beyond downloading and streaming all the episodes, there you can also consult the show notes with all the necessary links to our guests' homepages and books and other useful information. And there you have the perfect possibility to send me some feedback, criticism, new ideas, suggestions, and of course praise is always welcome. On the website, you have a tab on the right-hand side of the page, which allows you to send me a voicemail. So you don't even need to type. There is a contact form on the website for more traditional transmission as well. And yes, there you can also subscribe to our free newsletter. Other ways of writing to Thoth Hermes are, of course, the Facebook page and Twitter or ordinary email info at thoughthermes.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. And here comes an announcement about our sponsor. Anathema Publishing Limited. Quality occult books and contemporary esoterica. Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a triune relationship between publisher, author and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, 
Hermeticism, Witchcraft, Tuluciferian Philosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com Talking about sponsorship. Last time I have told you that starting this month, I now also have a Patreon account to help me support financially the production costs and the necessary investment for further development. Some of you have already used those links and become patrons, and I would really like to thank you for this. Your help is greatly appreciated. But we are still far off the same, and therefore I began calling out to all of you who would be able to do either a one-off donation through PayPal or become a patron on Patreon. Support level starts there at $2 per episode. You can find all the necessary links, both the donation button and the link to Patreon on the webpage ThoughtsHermes.com. And for those of you who are able and willing to pay $5 or more, there is a special treat. You will get to know the name of our guest for the next but one episode one week ahead of everyone else. And you can send me a personal question for our guest. He or she will then answer those questions at the end of the interview, which will of course keep its usual length. And those answers to the patrons' questions will also only be available to patrons. So you get that way your personal Q&A. And there is yet another treat, but this one is only available until September 8. If you subscribe as a patron until then, on whatever level, on Patreon for the Thoth Hermes podcast, or if you make a single donation on PayPal of at least $20, you will enter a draw for a free access pass to this year's Black Flame Montreal Conference, taking place in the French-Canadian Metropole from October 11 to 13. The pass represents a value of 112 US dollar or 99 euro. Sounds like a good occasion to become a supporter, what do you think? Okay, but enough for the business now. Today's guest is UK-based occultist and author Shani Oates. Made of the clan of Tubal Cain, the people of Goda, founded by Robert Cochrane, she will tell us how she came into that position, her views on the occult and much more. Before we go to the interview, as always, let's take a short moment and listen to some music. I thought for today some English folk music, not Irish or Scottish, but English, might be a good choice. The first piece we are going to listen to is called Dance to Your Daddy and performed by Nancy Carr and James Fagan. Enjoy!
came home with the summer, my little drummer. Dance to your daddy with Nancy Carr on the fiddle and James Fagg on guitar, but also vocals, both. You'll hear two more pieces of English folk music later in this program. Occultist, mystic, Luciferian pilgrim of the forbidden arts, traditional craft practitioner, independent researcher, lecturer, historian and writer of the craft, magic, ancestral tradition, particularly the Robert Cochrane tradition and the cultural folklore and folk magics of the UK and its northern heritage, spaywife and matriarch of the people of Goda, the clan of Tubal Cain, lifelong student of anthropology, tantra, philosophy and the arcane other author of several books that write informatively on the myths, gods and archetypes that imbue and inform the cults of crafts and witchcraft and folk traditions, shifting through the arcane to modern times. Wow, this is the numerous descriptions you can give to Shani Oates, who will be my interview guest today. She will very openly tell us how she discovered the world of the occult what it means to her today, what she thinks about traditions and in particular the British tradition. But we also learned that her and Cochrane's view is a much broader view than you would expect and find in other local traditions. It is very much influenced by Gnostic thought and hermetic approaches. Before we start the interview, I have to mention that I encountered some technical problems with recording and had to do quite some editing with the files. No worries, every single word of what Shani had to say is there. You might only think that the sound between when I speak and she speaks sounds very different, which is true, because it is from two different files. And also, when I speak, I sound sometimes like if I were hesitating, making little pauses between words and phrases. This is because I had that weird echo in my headphones when I spoke to her and that made me react like that. I'm sorry about this, but I think the content of what Shani has to tell us is so interesting that you will quickly forget about that. And what she tells us is not at all disturbed by technical issues. Enough talk. The interview will have a musical break in the middle as usual, and now we're off. Welcome, Shani Oates. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome on the Thought Hermes podcast, Shani Oates. We have tried several times to get together, and now finally we are. And I'm really happy that we can do this interview. Thank you for your time, Shani. Thank you, Rudolf. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So, Shani, your name has been around quite a bit in the esoteric world lately. You have published uh, a new book uh, a few months ago, but that's not the only thing. You have appeared on conferences. You have been around quite a bit. And 
I wonder if we could start that interview with a little bit of background about yourself. Um, how Shani Oates became the person in the world of the... Well, you also give the name, maybe. I would call the world of a cult, but maybe you give it another name. Um, how did you get where you are today? Maybe you can also talk to us a bit about the role that you have taken with the clan of the Vulcan recently. So please give us a bit of background about yourself. Okay. Um, I suppose it began many, many years ago when I was a child and I had, I suppose, um, an odd interest in, in things that were supernatural or occult. Um, I had a very, very um, acquisitive, acquisitive nature, shall we say, about these things. And I read many, many books in the local library, absorbed as much as I could about culture and religion and magic. Um, I, it seemed to be my passion more than most things that children might wish mm -hmm. to do. Um, it seemed to be everything that I, I wanted. Um, and so I, I focused my entire life really on listening to stories um, that were related to how people over centuries in time have utilized magic and the power of belief and the power of will to manipulate their lives. Um, and therefore, as I got older and I actually discovered that um, the things that a lot of people around me, my, my family and my grandfather in particular, would tell me about various traditions. Um, when I actually discovered that there were still people doing these things in more than one, in, a, in more than one isolated person, but as groups, um, that really fascinated me because it's it's one thing to have a member of your family tell you these things, but when you discover that there are actual people out there um, working together, you think this is something pretty incredible. And uh, I managed to read several articles by a person called Evan John Jones, um, whom to me at that time, I had never heard of, but his articles spoke to me in a way that I had I had never really anticipated being able to relate to something that, that closely, so close to my own heart. And he spoke of his mentor, who was Robert Cochran, whom he said had founded the clan of Tubal-Cain and referred to his own people within the group as the people of Goda. And this I found absolutely fascinating, more so because Evan John Jones described um, their principal philosophy as one that related to, to fate and the fact that everything in the world is subject to fate, but not in a fatalistic way, but in a way that if we use magic and the power of belief um, and um, knowledge, gnosis that we can gain from ancestral traditions that we can access, then we can put these things together and beat fate, overcome fate in, in actual fact is, is the word that um, Robert Cochran was, was fond of saying. Back in the 60s, apparently, he'd founded this group um, mainly to 
show people that there were still traditional ways of working, that there was a cultural-based magical premise still alive within this country um, and within European traditions and northern traditions that had not died away, that however remote or quiet it was, um, it was underlying the nature of, of the people, of folk. Um, and although Wicca was, was coming out as a new neo-pagan revival, um, it was still very much based in a classical concept. Um, and Robert Cochran was very much averse to that. He said, we don't need a classical pagan tradition. We have our own. Um, it's still alive and kicking, and this is what it's about. And so he wrote um, a few articles which got published in the Pentagram, um, which was a big occult magazine at that time. And again, because society was so small back in the 60s, everyone of every tradition knew each other. So there were no um, surprises amongst the people that were involved with everything at that time. Um, he then went on to correspond with various people and produce several letters, um, I think, and there's very few people that may not have read these. And they are beautifully written, and he expands a lot of his philosophy within them as um, guidance for people that were writing to him. Um, so I would advise people to, to try and find these. That's mostly online. They're also in, in my own books, and they are published within my books with... Um, background information which help you to understand some of the more obscure passages right. which are very beautiful quite mythopoetic um, but very extensive and deep really very deep philosophical teachings within mm -hmm. them let me go a bit back you talked about your grandparents your parents was there a tradition in your family I mean just a family tradition not the bigger one about magic and witchcraft I think there is something similar to that in all families. I think there's an awful lot of hoo-ha about people claiming their granny taught them this and this is some old weird tradition. I think every family has got folklore and magical elements. Um, I think that's the only way that families have survived in the past before um, the Second World War in particular, when we had um, the National Health Service and things like this, I think people had their own remedies, their own family books where things were written in them. But my, as far as my own grandfather was concerned, he was a member of the Woodcraft people. Um, and they, they are quite well known now for, for the things that they did magically um, and re with regards to the folk as well. Um, and he was an ardent um, rambler and, and an outdoor person. He was also an incredible craftsman. He was a smith. He was a carpenter. He was a beautiful illustrator. He had the most amazing talents. And... And he had the most ecumenical um, perspective on faith and belief. And he was very much an, um, an advocate of, of the self and of Gnosis and of finding knowledge. He, he also had this great thirst for wisdom. So he taught me many things that gave me, if you like, the hunger and the fundamental basis to build upon with later things that I discovered. So he opened the pathways for me. Um, And I could recognize the things that he would relate to in other things that I was introduced to later. Um, and a lot of what he'd said to me as a child that made no sense then made far greater sense and had um, a placement. It had relevance. Interesting. Probably everyone would need a person like that in their life to 
get to that point, don't you think so? Yeah. 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 And may I ask how old you were when you discovered the writings of Evan and then later Robert? Were you still very young? Um, no, I wasn't. I was probably about 30 by then. And between um, being a child and that time, between 30, I'd done, I'd worked pretty much by myself. I'd done my own magics based on the things that my grandfather had, had um, initiated with me and my own mother and my other grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Um, she was um, very much one for, if you like, the general stuff like reading tea leaves, reading cards, ordinary playing cards, um, reading the fire, scrying and just general, just it seemed to me the most ordinary things. Um, And she was very much a people person reader. She could analyze people and she taught me how to, to look at expressions and body language and just general stuff like that. And she'd talk about um, the spiritual, was a, a spiritualist medium and things like this. So between the two of them, my maternal grandmother and my paternal grandfather, I had quite a good grounding in many things. And those things sort of set me up for my own thing, if you like, that I managed to continue through my general adulthood when I was formulating what it was I wanted to do. Because I think a lot of people make the mistake of rushing into something in their late teens or early 20s thinking this is it and they go full belt into it with all the enthusiasm and power that you have at that age only to discover that it isn't for them or it comes crashing down or things go horribly wrong and then they lose faith um, whereas I think if you wait till you're mature at least 28, 29 I mean that's mature as, as far sure. as, as being a grown up sure. is concerned um, you have a better idea of what you want from life, what your expectancies are um, where your magical argosy is going what you expect from it in return so during that time I had made my own shrines um, my own magics, I had appealed to my ancestors I'd done all the folky things that, that I was taught to do um, but as it was company I began to crave and the right sort of company so when this material appeared at just the right time which it always does I was overwhelmed by it because it seemed to be the answer to everything um, and so I began a correspondence with Evan John Jones and was utterly delighted and surprised when he actually responded and wanted to talk further with me um, about some of the dreams that I had been having since I was a child, some of the experiences that I'd had back in the 60s as a child when they were still adults and practicing. Um, I, it seems that I'd been picking up various things that they'd been doing and this fascinated him and intrigued him and so he invited me to go down and visit him and talk about these things further although it took two years to gain that much trust with him. Um, so I went to visit him eventually, um, and we sat and talked for the best part of 20 hours straight flat. I was utterly exhausted. Um, and just as I, he was saying goodbye and put me back on the train to go home, he said, oh, and by the way, I'd like to make you the next maid of the, of the clan. I was just pardon you know it's what what is what do you mean I don't even know what that means talk to me more about it and as, as the train was pulling out of the station he just got this huge grin on his face and he said well if I were you girl he said I'd hitch your skirts up and run because this is going to be no easy ticket you know um, right. so 
that was that I was just left flummoxed for the whole journey home which was about six hours in the train mm-hmm. um, I immediately got home wrote a letter back to him asking what on earth he meant and he said come back in September which was a month later um, which I did and um, he discussed what was needed and what we had to do and what it meant what it entailed the vast responsibility and role because the maid is matriarch of the clan um, because it's very much of a, a family it's not a huge organisational order it's a family with a mother and a father-like figure um, who's referred to as the old father and everyone else is, is kin, kindred so the, the uh, maid is the matriarch but she's also the seeress the scryer the one who does the prophecies that sees things that that, that works into the other realms, that contacts the ancestors, that, that does all that, that carries the virtue, which is the word we use for power, because power is, is an often corruptible term and misunderstood. So it's seen in its more pure sense of being um, ambiguous and neutral. Um, the magister, of course, is was... Evan at that time uh, until he was ready to retire seven years later at which point I had to then appoint my own magister Um, and so that has continued I have to dig a bit deeper if you don't mind you you just go as far as you want but I could imagine that many of our listeners partly me including but only partly don't know very much about the clan of Tubal Cain, except for their name and your role there and what you just described. Could you say us a bit more about what the clan is and where I know it comes from Robert Cochrane, but what it actually is, what he created with it? Okay. Um, his um, ideal was to create a uh, a clan-based system, or rather not revive it, but reintroduce it to people as a way of creating family-based units um, that can be extended in the old-fashioned way that clans could, in that you can incorporate people into them and everyone becomes kindred, with the idea of using folk-based magics that were not based on superstition but were based on science, because one of the most important things is he called it an occult science. Um, he was all for removing paganism, removing superstition uh, and working forward with science, with gnosis, um, so that the self could be evolved. He was very much a mystic. Uh, so that the system, although it's folk based and it's based on traditional crafts, as in the things that we can make and manipulate traditionally um, in without mechanics. It's also not nostalgic in that if there's a mechanical way to do something, a plough field, you would plough a field with a plough, not a hoe. So you, you move all these things forward as best you can with technology without losing the magic and the premise by which uh, you can move them and understand them it's an ancestral cult. It's sometimes being called the cult of the dead because we revere ancestors. 
So there's, it's also been referred to by Bill Gray, who was a magician in the 60s, as a necromantic cult because it invokes the spirits of the ancestors to talk with us and be with us through the rites that we have um, because we celebrate... Um, rather than the wheel of the year, which we can celebrate, we have knots, we call nine knots. And these are the meetings that we come together for where we have the purpose of contacting those ancestors um, through particular um, mediums, through particular currents that are relevant at those times of the year, so that the information we get is to learn more about the, not just the tides on the earth, the telluric currents, but the celestial tides that are tied in with them um, and our own. So the, there's a three-way rhythm and we're trying to fit everything together so that we can um, move forward in an understanding of, of the entire... Um, I don't know how you. There are many New Age um, references to to these superstructures mm -hmm. and hyperstates and superstates of consciousness, but none of them seem satisfactory to what it actually feels like to be an, a non corporeal thing. But just beyond that, so it's in that status that we we aim to strive for. Um, whilst acquiring knowledge, knowledge that's been accumulated over many, many millennia and lost to us from, for, for various reasons. Um, so it's trying to remove ignorance. It's trying to evolve through gnosis. But it's also trying to do it in a celebratory way that remembers the folk traditions and customs that each partake and impart some of the mystery of of mystery traditions in the in the old and arcane sense right do i get you right that if somebody for example feels attracted to what he hears or reads about the cult he cannot choose to join the clan the person would be chosen by the clan if at all to be member of it, right? That's right, yes. I mean, yes. The, because we are um, partially within the public eye, as in that the, we are known, we're not secret, um, we're not a secret society, we are, our name is known, um, therefore people can write to us and talk to us about certain things, and there are a lot of things that we can discuss freely, um, partly because Robert Cochran put them out there himself, and partly because it's it's a lot of it is based on um, stuff that can be discussed, um, just right. just explained in, in perhaps our perspective, a different way of looking at things that other people might describe differently. But as far as becoming one of the kin, then yes, what we what we do is we feel um, a, an affinity towards a particular person, or mm -hmm. feel that they have um, a recognisable spirit from a past ancestor, and we then invite them if they would like to actually come and and be among us and of course they often do uh, it's very rare that someone might refuse in fact I don't think anyone has yet um, 
so yes, it's it's again that part of the tradition where you don't ask to join. Yeah. You are invited, but you're not disqualified from conversation or discourse or company. We do share sure. all those things very, very fairly and freely. Can you explain why it is called the clan of Tubal Cain? Because I know the name, well, from the Bible, Tubal Cain, but of course then also in relation to Freemasonry. But that's about the only other area why I have the name. And when I first read about this, I was very surprised. Do you know the reason for that? I do, yes. Um, one of the things that um, Cochrane was very fond of were, was creating puns. Now, he often used words and names of things to openly describe something, almost like a Rosetta Stone, by saying, I will call it this when I know it means this, and you will understand that middle term to relate to something you, you know. Um, so he would use these phrases and words, um, such as the, the gods, the tutelary gods are Hecate and Hermes um, and Saturn, but they're known to us as completely different names with completely different forms, but they, they relate an idea They relate a concept that other people can understand if they're familiar, more familiar with those names. And Tubal Cain is another one because it represents something that is far greater than just a smith. It's not a, it's not a clan that is whose god or tutelary deity is about smithcraft. It's about everything that something, some deity or some creature of deity thing would represent by by that name Tubal Cain. Um, and in the in the Masonic um, traditions and in the biblical traditions, the true essence of Tubal Cain is, is a flowing of water, it's a flowing of knowledge, it's the arcane everything that the whole entire right. race is built upon, it's, well it, it is, it's just everything, and it's all the arts, it's all the sciences, so it's just about everything you could possibly ever want to know, encompassed into this one being. So by calling it that, it relates to all of that rather than calling it, for instance, Wayland Smith or, or, or um, you know, another Smith from another tradition, yeah, such yeah. as Hephaestus, because that would be too limiting. It would immediately narrow its perspective and, and potential. Yeah, that, thank you for that. That's a very interesting explanation. Thank you. Uh, on a more general level, what is your take? Why is it especially the UK and the British Isles, let's say, who seem to have maintained such a strong tradition in that very field. Um, the Nordic countries a bit, but much less to my knowledge. Is it the island situation or is it something else? I think it is because we are such an eclectic country, because we are not purely Scandinavian and because we're not purely um, composed of Celtic-speaking peoples, um, because we have so many layers that are so rich to our traditions that have built up from many northern peoples across northern Europe and Scandinavia, and because at some point we became Christianized too, so there is that layer of tradition 
tradition, that layer of custom, which can't be pulled out of it. It's all cumulative. Um, so there are all these layers and customs and traditions and beliefs that have built up and created a particular British traditional craft perspective that I think is very unique to these isles. Um, and of course, we have here in the latitude that we are, a particular view of the sky. We have particular constellations, particular weather patterns, um, particular times when the moon rises and the sun rises and sets relating to those stars and seasons that they that the whole craft here was built around those things and they are totally different everywhere else on the planet so it doesn't transpose well to other countries not even further much further north of us we can share some of the god forms or ideas um, and some of the folklore and a lot of the spiritual aspects even some of the more mystical ones but the whole tradition itself is is quite unique in that it will take from many different things well, i take your point on the uniqueness and on the necessity of linking such a tradition to a geography for the very reasons you just mentioned but i also find that the uk maintains that tradition more than at least other parts of europe Maybe other parts of the world are just as strong. But in Europe, UK seems to be in a rather unique situation. It, it is. And again, I think that some of that may be um, because we have particular rural um, traditions mm -hmm. Of, of the people that are very different again to, to, to more cosmopolitan Europe um, I think we remain very much a backquarter amongst the, the more general poorer levels of peoples here um, than they did perhaps in Europe um, and so we had great faith and stock in those traditions that survived a little bit longer here I would say mm -hmm. um, certainly into the memories of people like our grandparents for instance that could still relate these things uh, whereas I think on, in Europe I think um, although the war spoilt a lot of things for many people we all lost a, a hell of a lot of customs and traditions in, in the generations that were lost there I think in Europe, um, particularly, the, the traditions that they had were more related to nationality, um, whereas here, because we didn't really have a nationality, because we are such a, um, a, a cumulative, eclectic mix of peoples, although we are known as a nation of British people, our customs are not based on nationality. They're just what they are, and they can vary so much even regionally. Um, across the UK, they can be so very different, just a few counties apart. Um, so therefore, I think the uniqueness of, of the distinctions that we have here, uh, whereas uh, somewhere like France, for instance, they would have a French nationality and a French custom. We don't have that here. We have regional customs. So everything is broken down even more. So it becomes so incredible um, but I know I have not known of that anywhere else yeah you might be quite right yeah would you in general put your tradition within the context of what is called traditional witchcraft or is it completely off that 
I I wouldn't yeah. um, because Cochrane didn't either. He insisted that it wasn't witchcraft and that um, witches, um, which the term witch is something that is used against us um, against anyone in in the traditional craft, um, anyone that was a cunning person or a charmer or a healer, if it not understood, would have been called or referred to as a witch, and he, and he would say, "We're not. We're we're the good people," or the you know the ladies were of the green gowns and the gentlemen were charmers and, and cunning folk. Um, they're not witches. So he would refer to his craft really as as traditional craft. But he said, you know, at the end of the day, everything is just a label and you can't really categorize anything. Um, He actually preferred not to refer to himself at all with a label or what he did as a label. Um, It's just that. And Evan John Jones would say it's just the thing that we do. Um, And that's ours. Um, As far as other people go to try and explain it, if we had to put it in one category, we would say it's traditional craft or folk-based, uh, folk magic, folkloric magic of the people. It's, uh, again, built around the cunning craft and charming traditions um, of the regions that we live in. It's, But that doesn't mean to say excludes the practice of witchcraft, because I think that's the imperative here. Witchcraft mm-hmm. is... The, practice in itself that can be incorporated into any faith, religion, order it's a particular way of working Um, in itself it's not a religion or a faith so anyone, anywhere can use it Um, whether you're a Christian or or not whether you're a pagan or not it's irrelevant if you're doing that particular thing that's witchcraft Um, so yes we can use witchcraft but we're not a witchcraft tradition so we right. would say we were British witchcraft. Right. But your tradition can also be done in any religious context. It's not linked to religion either, or is it? No. Right. It, it has the basis of, as, a, as um, I, tr- I think I tried to explain it earlier, well, I touched upon briefly, in that it has um, semblances of Gnosticism, of, yes. of um, he- he- heathenism, of Anglo-Saxon, of something of the European Celtic-based peoples, the kind of faith that they might have had. It's got an awful lot of, of layers, very, very complex layers that have built up over a long time. Um, so, no, we wouldn't say we were heathens and we wouldn't say we were Christian, non-Christian or, or, or any of those things. It is a folk-based tradition in that it is based entirely in the traditions and customs of its time. And, again, that was something he was most insistent on, that whatever is done is relevant to the time, which may be different now to 30 years ago, because everything moves in time, everything evolves and changes. So one generation to the next might focus on different aspects of those traditions and find them particularly relevant to their time and politics. And the faith at its core is unchanging. There are certain principles that we adhere to and, and follow that are unchanging. And and he does refer to it as a faith um, because it's a faith in in the other, the fact that there is an animism. I suppose that's the closest thing that you could say that we are 
if you wanted to pin it down to something, it's an animistic premise mm-hmm. of everything. Um, and that is that what we have the faith in that and the ancestral um, interactions with those animisms and what they can relate to us. Um, I suppose he's also said, Robert Cochran said, that the highest thing above all gods is trust and trust. Truth is is what we're all about. So it's a discovery of truth, that knowledge that underpins everything, that vital aspect, which is truth. What you said about Gnosticism, I find that very compelling because also how you just explained it now with truth and, well, even the science part you mentioned, that's exactly how I would understand and define Gnosticism. Right now, it is time for a short musical break and for English folk again. The following piece of music is called The Oxford and Hampton Railway, and it is performed by John Raven. Okay, let's take the train. Where I 
for many years did well growing cabbages and potatoes. But worse than that, my daughter now run off with an navigator. Riff and dip and look and fun, don't you wonder how it's done? Carriages without horses run on the Oxford and Hampton Railway. When line is finished at both ends, and you can send your cups and ends, and go and visit all your friends along the Oxford Railway. Rip and dip and mud and fun, don't you wonder how it's done? Carriages without horses run on the Oxford and Hampton Railway. You can send your butter and cheese at any time, whenever you please. You can send your hens and eggs, and then can ride us as no legs on the Oxford and Hampton Railway. Rip and dip and milk and pond, don't you wonder how it's done. Carriages without horses run on the Oxford and Hampton Railway. The Oxford and Hampton Railway with John Raven. And now we will return to Shani Oates. In a short while, we will talk about her latest book that was published a few months ago, named The Hanged God. And there again, she shows us the wide approach she takes to the subjects she talks about. And suddenly that hanged god Odin is much more than a Nordic deity. After the interview, There will immediately be the third piece of music, and this one is called Three Ravens. And also the performers are three. They call themselves the Black Country Three. But before that, we shall now return to Shani Oates. Before we go to your books and to your last books especially, um, one last question about this. Um, you said you were, as the maiden of the clan, basically the seer also for the kind. Um, could you define that role a bit more precisely? What does the clan do with what you see? If that can be said. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll be very careful how I answer this. Sure, no, I mean, don't want to put you in any difficult situation. It's just uh, find, find the context, that's all. Uh, it, it basically means that we have particular rituals that will set up um, an atmosphere and facilitate a trans-state shift whereby uh, the mindset of the CRS will move into an obviously an unconscious state and be receptive to a particular focus that has been pre-decided and worked towards so that it the um, the mind is absolutely honed in on one particular concept that if you like it's hunting for it's seeking out something um, and it will having found that bring that back and relate it um, and obviously this may be in the form of symbols ideas words sounds colors all of these things will be will written down as they are explained and and analyzed And then there will be workings on the analysis to see how accurate that might be. 
There are also other kinds of um, these um, searing, uh, and that is when questions are put to the CRS in a trance state. Um, it's a different kind of trance state for that. Uh, it's not quite the same, um, and it's acquired by different means. So again, there are different stages of trance acquired by different um, mechanics. <laughs> Try to be very careful. No, sure. And um, and then which facilitate a different way of working. So open to questions or completely gone, um, and on off wandering somewhere. Um, Again, I don't like to use New Age terms, so I always try to avoid them. So if I sound vague, I do apologize. Uh, I'm absolutely with you because I have a lot of problems with New Age terms myself, so I'm happy to avoid them. (laughs) It's funny because what you're just saying reminds me a bit of the old Greek tales, you know, about seeresses and how they have seemed to work. I haven't been there, but but that's how I would imagine um, about what we read and all that. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. I think something that works can only work in pretty much one way, um, yeah. and that's it. This is what it comes down to: the truth of the matter, the nux of the matter. There's you can put as much um, smoke and mirrors in front of something, you can bullshit something as much as you like, but when it comes down to the nitty gritty, it's the same thing. There's only right. one way of doing something if it's if it's going to work. We're all humans, and so we all, in the end, work the same way. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, Shani, we have now talked about the tradition, a lot about the UK, and now let's talk about how you carry your knowledge out into the world, because uh, you have been speaking quite a bit lately on conferences, um, and you have recently published that new book, um, which I have here, The Hanged God, Odin Grimnir. From what I have understood from the book, it's very much related to that ancestor and necromantic part of your tradition. Um, but it goes much beyond what we were just talking now. It's much more global in my understanding. Um, well, why don't you give us a first introduction into the book and tell our audience a bit what it is about, why you wanted to write it, what was your aim, what's your tale you want to share? I'm very fascinated by the way that all manners of oracles and mediums have been used from singing, from chanting, from reading runes, from um, tarot, from all of these things um, have an effect upon the mind and relate um, information. I've, I wondered about the magics behind these and I wondered in particular about the magics behind the runes because my own tradition is based very much upon, to a large extent, those from those northern traditions that have used them. Uh, and most of the sagas that you read tend to refer to a particular number of runes. Um, the elder and younger Futhark, for instance, refer to 16 or 24, but they only actually refer to how Othin was able to acquire 16. 
And so how on earth did he manage to acquire the other eight and, and where did they come from? So this is something I'd been working on for a few years now and trying to work out very carefully through lots of research um, scientifically and intellectually, but also in trans work as well, looking for clues, looking for answers on how this might work, looking to see the smallest clue in an, an enormous thesis about that something written or mentioned incidentally that could refer to how this could have worked. And you have to read between the lines sometimes, um, and some things will, will jump out at you as a possibility that hasn't been said. It's an unsaid thing. And so it's putting all of this together and then looking at it and saying, yes, I think that would work. I think that is how he did it. I think this is where these mysterious runes came from. And it makes sense if you look back at the tradition itself, those peoples would have done that because it's, it is something that is obvious. Once the answer's there, you think, absolutely, they couldn't have done it any other way. I am not myself a big specialist of the rune. Um, so when I read your book, it was a lot of new approaches to me, not just from your approach, which is very generally new, I think, uh, and but also in general so I had to come in on two levels so to speak um, what fascinated me is that actually two things F first that you explained all those very well let's call them cruel stories so bloody stories that we hear from northern mythology in a very um, pragmatic way, they all seem to have a common aim, as you said, to find all the runes. So it's not just stories between gods and things happening like that, but it all comes down to one point. Do I get you right on that? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is one of the things that Robert Cochran, again, was so... His tradition, his concept of learning was a mythopoetic um, perspective of breaking down the mystery of the word, breaking down the mystery of the secret that's hidden in the word and the way that words are constructed, the way that stories are constructed, the way that fairy tales, <clears throat> even nursery rhymes and poems have used a particular language that says one thing and means entirely something else. Mm -hmm. And it's getting to that um, that has fascinated me also. And it is a Socratic method too of a very scientific approach of, of removing things and, and looking at their semblances, their parts, reconstructing them in a better way that makes sense of everything that you've just seen and read and understood to a point and you understand it then very differently. And the stories seem to say something that is strong in narrative, strong in excitement. What are they saying underneath all of that? So, you know, scratch all that away. What is being said? And yes, the narratives, um, the traditions of of being hanged, of 
of um, shamanic enterprise. All of these things have been discussed by many people. Did was he being a shaman? Was he was he hanging in the trees in trance? Was he being criminalized? What was happening there? Mm-hmm. Was he being punished? And and I've just you know looked through all of those and thought, well, no, there's there's elements of those, but there is more still going on there. There's there's another reason he's doing this. There's something else, and it's something else that has to have a purpose. He isn't just doing this for no reason. The stories are not there for no reason. There seems to be remblan, um, remnant stories of Ragnarok and, and of origin, and, and no one's actually put them together as a, as a chronology. I thought there has to be an eschatology here. Um, there has to be a cosmology here, and it's it's being ignored. So let's let's see if we can actually reconstruct that. So that's what I've tried to attempt there to show that there are these things going on that have an aim and that his magics and his outlaw um, adoptive manners were for a particular purpose and that is why even in his own time he wasn't a popular cult it's been much popularized now and it's often given out that he was an, a massive popular god of his people but he wasn't uh, not at all very selective and for a very select purpose um, and I hope that throughout the book I've made this very clear and the reasons why but if I explain too, too much it will spoil the, the story of the yeah exactly don't do that <laughs> you just said taking the story apart and put it reconstruct it right put it together again um, do you think that a myth or mythology or whatever you would like to call it needs reconstruction from time to time in a new era, in a new time that we live in, because our language, I don't mean the words themselves, but the context and the language has changed. Absolutely. I think even throughout history, the way the narratives have built up, you can see that they've changed. I mean, they, they would change from region, region to region as each storyteller and scold related them. He'd make them relevant to his particular chieftain. Even the names would change. The situations might change. Um, I mean, Shakespeare did this with Elizabeth, you know. You, you change things to be relative to your time. Um And so when people are looking back, historians, they think, well, is he talking about his own time or is it a story that's older? Has it relevance to some other time as well? And generally it does. So, yes, myths are cumulative. So you have to remove each layer because each layer will be relative to a different period. Um, it will have a particular nuance um, that, that you have got, if, depending on which one you want to look at. Uh, try and understand and from the sagas that were written 13, 1400 most people will say oh of course they relate they're supposed to relate to hundreds of years ago but they were written in that time so they must only be relevant to that time but they're clearly not they're, they've clearly retained those earlier nuances that unless you can understand what it is you're actually looking for to begin with, it's very difficult to remove the 1300 and 1400s perspective. So yes, it is essential to break things down and reconstruct them. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And also, even here, when you talk about who often is and 
being the hanged god, as I call them here. Even here, I feel a bit of Gnosticism in it because he's almost a bit to what in the Bible Adonai could be, or I mean, the Demiurge somehow. Am I completely off there, or do, would you agree on that? He is without giving away the plot too much because he has a particular okay. purpose within that eschatology. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Not yes. in, in the Christ-like figure um, because he's no, often no. prepared to Christ um, yes. and the, the rude is uh, often um, related to that. And again, there are elements within the traditions of the English peoples of um, Odin being compared to, to Christ. But I think that that again has been um, a pretty much a mask and it doesn't work and it needs yes. to be removed so that people can see what is really going on with Odin and the and the, the rude. I will not refer to it as I do in a book because yeah. again that gives too much away but exactly. yes he does have a particular eschatology so in that he is like a demiurge absolutely. It's more Zoroastrian as a tradition than Christ Christian. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. Yes absolutely. The other thing I mentioned, two things that struck me, um, maybe that's completely uh, uh, unimportant for you, but I was struck by the presence of the horses. You know, I, I think the horses and the horse corpses and all of that plays a very important part in that book. Yes. Yes, horses and other animals too. Um, yes. This is one of the most fantastic things about an animistic tradition in the, the absolute um, consistency and uniformity of context of animals and the, the coexistence of animals and their importance as transmediums, um, as transportative creatures, as something that you can you would relate to in a shape-shifting manner, something you'd revere as an ancestral form, something you'd see as your filger, your your own um, animal sense, your own animal person, um, and all of these things relate to the power um, of an animal. Um, so horses in particular are relevant on many levels because they are all of these things. They are also a symbol of wealth and status, but they are primarily something that moves, that shifts. Uh, and that element and that beauty and elegance and grace that the horse has, um, has got particular, um, again, folk traditions built around them. The mysticisms of, of the horse, the psychopompic um, perspective of the horse and the catonic elements of the horse. I mean, the range mm -hmm. of magical possibilities and potential within, within that particular animal. Is is why it was so fundamental to many many peoples um, of all ages across the the world, really. Somehow until today, because it is uh, it is seen as an animal on a psychological level, which 
relates very much to the human mind, uh, even as far as psychoanalysis yes. goes. Yes, we have course. tremendous affinity with the horse, which is yeah. why we have so many horse traditions um, in, mm. the, in the country folkloric rural craft. There are, of course, the, the horseman traditions, the whispering horses, um, and you have that right across the world. It's very important. But yes, certainly, as you said there, those traditions are very important. The psychoanalysis, the physical mindset, the the unity of man and horse, the the Templars, um, the you've got the the Sagittarius, the Centaurs. There's so much mythology about man and horse as one. There are runic symbols of of man and horse together. Um, there are horse myths of people being horses, water horses, spirit horses, uh, because right. we have so much magic involved and embedded within that creature. It, it is fascinating. You're absolutely right. I would also quickly like to come to a, well, an essay, I say, a short essay that you wrote lately and published in the last Pillars edition, if you don't mind, called uh, Rosa Mundi, The Alchemy of the Compass. And here we are in the middle of a Gnostic tale, so to speak, because, um, and there we are again. Um, you want to say a few words about that as well? Um, I, well, what would you like to, would you like to ask about something to do with? Well, I was fascinated by the alchemy of the compass, to be honest, by the title. It attracted me. Um, because alchemy is something I personally very much relate to. I do think I know a bit about it. I mean, in all its spiritual contexts, of course, I mean, and, um, the compass on the other side is a symbol that through my Masonic background, but also in general, means a lot to me as an overspanning um, uh, symbol, yes. So putting those two in relation, I thought was a fascinating idea. It the um, the article itself is written primarily to introduce the concept of of as you say alchemy, which is the mm -hmm. transmutation of the self through various degrees, using various elements and magical workings to move from one stage to the next. Um, so there is that element. There is the element of the compass itself, which is again um, creating a regional. Um, matrix for which will facilitate those shifts and movements and then there is the Gnostic element of what's going on in the mind so you've got three levels there all in unison all in tandem and all working towards this shift um, so the alchemy of the compass itself there is an explanation of how that can be applied as a traditional um, magic as something that's doable and achievable today for anyone to go and, and do on their own. They don't have to join a massive, fantastic, expensive organization. They can just do it, providing that they've got some, some mentoring 
um, it can just be one person, but someone to guide them that's knowledgeable. But basically, once they have that training and that mentorship, they can find these things out for themselves, providing they have these structures that they, they are comfortable with building. But the, the Gnostic element there, um, the, the scientist, the person that's seeking that truth in, in a manner of, of faith and the belief in all of these things is something that I felt it was absolutely important because so many people were saying that traditional craft is just something that is relevant to to craft something you can use with your hands and others were saying oh it's witchcraft or, and others were saying oh it's just rural folklore superstitions and I wanted to show that it isn't that it is so very much more um, and it has so much more to offer and that it is right. really a very beautiful system thank you can I pick you up on that because you just said something that I think is very relevant to many people out there also listening here partly um, they are very interested many of them do a lot of very good work personal work for searching and searching their path and where to transform the world in a better way somehow but I often get the question, well, what shall I do? I'm all on my own and I don't want to join one of those groups. Either they are too expensive, they are too far away, or they are too whatever. Um, what would you suggest such a person? How should they proceed? How should they go to find their mentor or do you have any other suggestion for them? I think it's very important that people find, obviously, um, I, I, it is an obvious thing sometimes to say these things, but it needs to be said. People that they can trust, that they feel comfortable with. And so often people will remain with people they don't trust and feel comfortable with because they think there is nothing else. Um, and there is always something else. So that's most important of all. Find people you can trust either preferably not online I would say but that is a good way to start um, try and find real people in the real world um, so that you know who they are and what they're about and if you do meet them online at least try and meet them in person get to know them in person not just online write to them find out as much as you can about their, what they do what they say read their material see if it resonates with you Again, if that's the first port of call, the written word, read more, read more and read more and read more. Um, and so that you're comfortable with everything that they've said. And if you take um, set precedent with anything they've, they've said, write to them and say, question them. And if they're a, a, a positive um, group or people, they should respond and they should be able to take some criticism or constructive discourse if however they you know they uh, shoot you off immediately then they're definitely someone to avoid because that's not how it should be they should always be um, approachable and talkative and willing to discuss things absolutely very well said well, Shani, we are slowly coming to the end of our hour here on Thothermis. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you, 
tell us a bit about your upcoming plans. Maybe, I don't know, is there a new book out there waiting for us somewhere? Um, do you have other plans that you would like to tell us about? Uh, what does the future bring for us with Shani Oates? Uh, okay. Um, this year has been quite an interesting year for me. As you say, I've held quite a few conferences and talks this year, which is wonderful. Um, it's wonderful to get out there and actually talk to people because normally I'm quite a bit of a recluse. I have a year or two where I'm writing, 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 and then I go out and talk and then I write and write and write. And this year it's been going out and talking to people, which is wonderful. Um, but next year I hope to get back into the rest of the books I'm doing two more in the trilogy for for Othen so there's a couple more in that um, particular genre to finish as a, as a trilogy I'm redoing Trubello's Green Fire which talks again a lot about my tradition and the premises and the fundamental principles of it the ethos and mythos and things like that um, and I'm also still working on The Three Faces of Eve, which is a book about um, the beauty of and the magical wonder of womankind as the, the face of the ultimate she. Um, and there's a book of poetry that I'm writing to. So at some stage, all of these things will come out in the near future. Shani, thank you so much. I'm glad we could talk today. Thank you for your time and for your patience. And also, I think you were able to show our audience that you are such a multifaceted person uh, talking about, well, the, the clan of Tubal-Cain, of course, but about Gnosticism, about Northern traditions, about... Um, masonry you know about everything so thank you about all that and um, I hope we'll be able to meet soon again I'll make sure that all relevant information will be on the website going with that interview thank you thank you for your time thank you for your being with us Hermes and I hope to see you soon again thank you likewise here's to next time Oh, down there comes a fallow doe 
was great with young as she might go with a down dairy 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 down down she lifted up his wounded head down a down hey down hey down and kissed the wounds that were so red with a down she got him up upon her back carried him to earthly with a down dairy 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 down down she buried him before the prime down a down hey down hey down and was dead herself her eve song time with a down got sent to every gentleman such hopes such hounds and such lemen with a down dairy 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 down down with a down dairy 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 down down three ravens performed by the black country three a very interesting and rare talk indeed that Shani gave us here, with a lot of things I was able to learn once again, like so often when I do those interviews. Every time I hope that you have just as much fun listening as I do when making these shows. And if so, then I'm sure you enjoyed. Thanks again, Shani. Well... This brings us to the end of today's episode, which was episode 6 in season 3. Thanks for coming by and being with us. I hope you didn't mind the little problems in sound quality we had today. It will be better again next time. Our next regular episode will bring a guest from very far away from most of us, but who is rather well known among those of you who are interested in hermetics and alchemy. He goes by the name of Rubafilos Solfluere, and he is based in New Zealand. He is one of the most interesting and serious practitioners that I know about, and his YouTube channel is extremely fascinating. You are certainly going to enjoy this. The guest of episode 8... Well, as I said, he or she will only be revealed to patrons of the Thoughts Hermes podcast first. But you all will hear that name at the end of our next show. And there will also be a new Ex Libris episode between regular episodes 7 and 8. So plenty of things to look forward to and plenty of pleasant work for me. For today... I am thanking you again for being my audience and always so numerous when we meet. Have a good time until our next episode. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.